Today marks the start of what could be an official heat wave for most of New England. The humidity has backed off, but the heat is in full throttle. In Europe, the high heat in the southern and central areas is heading northward. One report says the high temperatures and low rainfall means nearly half of the EU's land area should be in drought this summer. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, NPR has an exclusive early look at the Biden administration's plan to get health insurance to children and talking to children about abortion, the procedure or the politics. How do you invite your kids to wrestle with really complicated, not black and white questions in a way that's curious and compassionate? Coming up, a psychologist and a pediatrician weigh in. And later, an old school amusement park that has not lost its allure. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers and the Forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The National Archives is now looking into reports that the U.S. Secret Service deleted text messages during a two-day period surrounding the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol last year. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports the agency's chief records officer wants to find out if the messages were erased improperly. Chief Records Officer Lawrence Brewer says the Secret Service must send the National Archives a report if any of the text messages were improperly deleted. Brewer says the report is due within 30 days and must document the records erased, the circumstances surrounding the deletions, and efforts to retrieve and reconstruct the messages. A DHS watchdog claims the Secret Service deleted messages after they were requested. Separately, the messages were included in a subpoena by the House Select Committee. The Secret Service has maintained that no messages were deleted after the watchdog made its request for records. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. Extreme heat is putting roughly tens of millions of people in dozens of states in the south, central, and northeastern U.S. under some form of a heat advisory. The National Weather Service issued a red flag warning in North Texas, where wildfire has burned several homes. Temperatures were expected to climb near 110 degrees Fahrenheit in parts of that region. The fire service in London has declared a major incident after several different fires broke out in and around the city in Britain this afternoon. Villa Marks has the latest from London. On the same afternoon, England and Scotland recorded their highest temperatures in history. Several homes east of London were ablaze with nearby fields on fire. Safety officials are urging residents of the capital not to light bonfires or barbecues amid the unprecedented heat. In the village of Wennington, fires from a nearby grassland have engulfed homes and partially destroyed a church with almost a dozen other blazes burning. Fire service officials have encouraged those witnessing further fires to ring emergency services, but asked people to take particular care as well to avoid unnecessary call-outs. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. The Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, Petri Talis, warns extreme weather events like those underway in Europe and other parts of the globe will occur more frequently. It is another call to action to governments representing millions of people at risk of being displaced to respond more forcefully and quickly to human-caused climate change. We have already pumped uh, so much uh, carbon dioxide to the atmosphere that the negative trend will continue for the coming decades, and so far we haven't been able to reduce our emissions uh, globally. Scientists say global emissions need to drop 43 percent by the year 2030. That goal just eight years away. And then emissions have to fall to net zero by 2050 if there's any chance at limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two Massachusetts Congresswomen were arrested today outside the U.S. Supreme Court. Catherine Clark and Ayanna Presley were among 16 members of Congress and 18 others taken into custody during their protest of last month's Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Presley chanted about abortion rights as Capitol Police escorted her away from the demonstration when she was being arrested. Capitol Police say the demonstrators were blocking traffic and refused to obey orders to stop. Catherine Clark released a statement saying the act of civil disobedience was one example of how she will fight to protect abortion rights. Clark's office said she's been released and has agreed to pay a fine. No word from Presley's office on whether or not she's been released. President Joe Biden will visit Massachusetts tomorrow. The White House says he'll visit Somerset to deliver remarks on tackling the climate crisis and creating a clean energy future. Somerset has become one of the state's hubs for the development of offshore wind energy. The city of Boston and a Christian group that sued because its request to fly the Christian flag at City Hall was denied have reached an agreement. The flag will be raised at City Hall on August 3rd for about two hours, starting at 11 a.m. The federal appeals court has also ordered the city to pay attorney's fees. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in May that Boston wrongly denied the group's request. The city routinely has allowed other organizations to fly their flags, but rejected the Christian flag over concerns about the appearance of government sponsoring religion. As you well know, the heat wave is underway now. Boston hit 92 degrees at Logan Airport. The National Weather Service has posted a heat advisory. Meteorologist Daniel Noyce says this is just the beginning of a long heat stretch. Here we go. The thermometer hitting 90-plus degrees already in many communities. The start of our heat wave tonight. Temperatures drop into the mid-70s. It'll be mostly clear, hazy, hot, and humid tomorrow. Highs 90 to 95. Heat index hovering around 100 degrees will be 85 to 90 for Cape Cod. An isolated pop-up thunderstorm is possible. And not much relief in sight with highs in the low to mid-90s expected to last through the weekend. 88 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 406. WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. How soon can more Americans get a second COVID-19 booster? That is what the Biden administration is trying to decide right now, whether to significantly expand booster shot eligibility this summer to protect more people against the latest Omicron surge. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here to explain. Rob, this has gotten really confusing for some people. So if you could just remind us who is already eligible for another booster and what's being considered by the administration right now? Sure. This is all about second boosters. We're talking about fourth shots. You know, anyone age 50 and older has been eligible for a second booster since March. Same goes for anyone age 12 and older who has a weak immune system. But that means that most people younger than 50 haven't been eligible for another booster, even though the immunity they got from their first three shots has been wearing off. And now the most contagious strain of the virus yet, the Omicron subvariant called BA5, is fueling it another surge. Here's Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota. 
When we look at what's happening with this widespread transmission right now, BA5, it just really, I think, cries out for what else can we do to reduce the likelihood of serious illness? And boosters are, I think, the obvious answer. So NPR has confirmed that federal officials are debating whether to make second boosters available to all adults to protect them through the summer. Okay, so tell us about this debate. Who, who doesn't think that this is a good idea? Well, you know, some people think the extra shot should just be offered to those at high risk for some reason. I talked about this with Dr. Anthony Fauci. I don't think it would make much sense for a perfectly healthy 25-year-old person to necessarily get a boost now. There's a difference between a perfectly healthy 25-year-old person and a 43-year-old person with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You know, or heart disease, or asthma, or, you know, pregnant women. But others say all adults should at least have the option. Here's Dr. Robert Wachter at the University of California, San Francisco. People are no longer being as careful as they were. We know that immunity wanes over time. We have a variant that is capable of evading the immune system. We have good evidence that the second booster lowers the probability of severe case. And you put all that together, and it seems to me that it should be offered to people as an option. But others just think there's really no need to open up booster eligibility broadly at this point. And Rob, given how contagious you've said that BA5, this variant, is, why do they say not to open up booster eligibility broadly? Yeah, so some say there really isn't good evidence that a second booster would really do much for most people. Three shots are still keeping most people from getting really sick or dying, and there is concern that if you keep giving people the same shot over and over again, it could backfire by kind of training their immune system to only try to fight off the original strain of the virus. I talked about this with Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease expert at Kaiser Health News. There's this phenomenon of imprinting, also known as original antigenic sin, where if you continue to give doses of the same vaccine, you could, in a sense, trap the immune system in wanting to respond to the original virus and not adapting as well to future variants. But even those who aren't worried about that have another concern, that giving people another booster now may confuse things for the fall when the government plans to roll out the next generation of vaccines, you know, vaccines that have been updated to target Omicron and try to protect people against what could be a Another bad winter surge. There also just may not be enough time to do both boosters since people have to wait months between the boosters for them to work. So you can see it's, it's a tough, complicated call, but the FDA could decide what to do by the end of this week. NPR's Rob Stein, thank you. You bet, Juana. As the war in Ukraine nears its sixth month, people in the northeastern city of Kharkiv are getting used to a new normal. Construction crews are cleaning up bombed out buildings. People are returning to work. But they do all that as air raid sirens go off multiple times a day and between daily missile strikes on the city. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from Kharkiv. City officials continue to plead with Kharkiv residents to respect the air raid alerts. But the sirens go off so frequently that many people don't. Only when an explosion is particularly loud and presumably close do residents head for the bomb shelters. 21-year-old Anastasia Shapoval says in Kharkiv right now, you have to balance the shelling with the rest of your life. When it's shelling uh, and you go to a coffee shop, uh, I saw on Telegram, uh-huh, okay, shelling, but I want some coffee. Okay, I should go for coffee. <laughs> 
Shapoval, who just graduated from college, works at a volunteer center that distributes food packets. A few days earlier, a rocket brought down a five-story building across from the center. Shapoval says another missile hit just 200 yards from her house. But she says Kharkiv is her home, and this is where she wants to be right now. Our shelling, it's not like all day long, no. Most of the explosions are in the northern suburbs and industrial areas, and Shapoval says you get used to it. Like a resident, I understand that, uh, okay, we have uh, a night shelling when, for example, we have uh, air alert, and uh, um, for example, 15 minutes, so there are three, five, seven bombs in Kharkiv, okay, but uh, not all time. She recognizes that this isn't normal. This current Kharkiv life isn't for everyone, she says, and many of her friends who've left may not come back until the war is finished. When Russia attacked Kharkiv in late February with fighter jets and cruise missiles, ordinary life in Ukraine's second largest city abruptly came to a halt. The vast majority of Kharkiv's population fled the city. Kharkiv's underground metro stations, which were built by the Soviets to withstand nuclear bomb blasts, became permanent shelters. Thousands of people slept on the station platforms and in subway cars. But now the metro trains are running again. Commuters and families dart in and out of the aging rail cars. And where residents used to sleep in the subterranean stations to escape the bombing raids, volunteers now offer first aid classes. Alexei Yarachenko leads a class specifically focused on how to treat people injured in rocket attacks. He demonstrates how to use a tourniquet and bandage a shrapnel wound. It's War First Aid 101. Alexander Maltsev just watched one of the classes. Uh, understand the uh, explosion and uh, war on our street every day. The 40-year-old says rocket attacks are so common in Kharkiv, it's important to know how to help. Back above ground, work crews are gutting damaged buildings. Many have had their windows blown out by explosions. This has led to a lot of storefronts being covered with plywood. This includes Anastasia Shapoval's favorite cafe, La Show 2. Shapoval and her friend Alexander Kochkin say that the name of the cafe is three words that don't really mean anything but are quintessentially Kharkiv. La to show it's just three different words. La, it's about uh, what are you doing. Show it's like what, what, and. And two, two, it's like when a uh, lot of English people uh, say like, uh, so we say two. <laughs> the name of the cafe, Shapoval says, is like a young person saying whatever, but saying it in a way you'd only hear in Kharkiv. A few nights ago, she came here to the cafe, she says. It was full of people again for the first time since the Russian invasion. Despite the air raid sirens and the shelling and the missing windows, there's life here. And she says she loves this city. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. Western Europe is in the grips of a brutal heat wave that is breaking records and spreading further north than ever before. Britain registered its highest ever temperature at over 104 degrees in London. And wildfires have broken out across Portugal, Spain and France, killing hundreds. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Paris. I've just come out of my own apartment into the street. And I've lived here... A pretty long time, and I think I've never felt such hot air. It's 8 o'clock at night. The sun is still baking, and there's a hot wind. It does not feel like Paris. 
I'm François Jobard, a weather forecaster uh, in Metro France, uh, in Paris. Jobard agrees it doesn't feel like Paris, where the average summer temperature is around 80. He switches to French to get more technical. This afternoon was 105 degrees, the second hottest day registered in Paris in 150 years, since the first weather station was put in a central park in 1873. From then until 2019, there was only one day where it got that hot, and that was in 1947. Jobar says the heat waves will become more frequent and intense because greenhouse gases have undeniably caused global warming. He says the current heat dome is due to air from North Africa and the Sahara Desert that's stagnating over Europe. Sebastian Mernild is a professor of climate change and glaciology at the Climate Institute of the University of Southern Denmark. I reach him on the phone in Italy where he's on vacation. That's why I'm just walking on the street with my family here. Mernild says warm air from Africa is going farther north because the jet stream is weakening and becoming more unstable. And that's happening because Arctic temperatures are rising faster than everywhere else. The Arctic, Arctic heats up, roughly speaking, on average three times faster compared to the global mean temperature change. The Arctic is heating up three times faster than everywhere else. Mernild says it will all get worse until we reduce our greenhouse emissions. In Paris, most apartments don't have air conditioning. I wanted to see how Parisians are coping. I lower the shades to keep the sun out and close the windows all day. And when I get up in the morning very early, I open them and try to get some fresh air in. And I have the fans going, says Adnan Abadi. Excuse-moi, madame. Another woman tells me she has no time to talk because she's got a bag of ice that's melting and her little son who's holding her hand is not well from the heat and sun. Many people say they haven't felt heat like this since the summer of 2003 when more than 30,000 mostly elderly people died across Europe with 14,000 deaths in France alone. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The most recent FBI data showed that Missouri has the highest rate of black homicide victims, and one analysis ties it to the state of gun laws. That story coming up on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com and La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Even Wall Street was hot today. The Dow gained nearly 2.5 percent, 754 points, to finish the day at 31,827. S&P rose a little more, 2 and 3 quarters percent, to settle at 39.37. The Nasdaq picked up even more territory, over 3 percent, to finish the day at 11,713. Marketplace has details coming up at 6.30. It's now 4.19 in the forecast. Look for searing heat through the rest of the day today. Overnight tonight should fall to the mid-70s. A light wind for a little bit of relief anyway. Tomorrow, a lot like today. Hot and humid back up to the low to mid-90s, feeling closer to 100. 
For Thursday, a thunderstorm could provide a bit of relief in the afternoon. Otherwise, bright sunshine, breezy and hot, still around 94 degrees. No relief on Friday, and it could stay ugly hot through the weekend. On the Cape, by the way, there's only things are only a little bit better off. Should be between 85 and 90 degrees tomorrow on the Cape. This is WBUR 88 degrees in Boston. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Black Americans made up 14% of the U.S. population, but accounted for more than half of all homicide victims in 2019, the most recent year with available data from the FBI. And Missouri stands out as the state with the highest number of Black people killed in homicides per capita. That is according to the latest annual study by the Violence Policy Center. Josh Sugarman is the group's executive director and joins me now. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. So, Josh, this is the sixth year in a row that your organization found Missouri to have the highest rate of Black homicide victims. And the state saw that rate jump 45 percent between 2014 and 2019. Any indication as to what is behind that stark increase? The only thing that we can look at is the data we receive from the FBI. And so what we've seen probably the most striking factor is involvement of guns in Black homicide victimization. In Missouri, 95% of Black homicide victims were killed with a gun. So across the board, we find in this study, it's not just in Missouri, but across the country, the role played by firearms. But in certainly in Missouri, it's striking. I grew up in that state, and I have to wonder, when you look at Missouri and other states, how much of this is about accessibility of guns by purchasers? How easy it is to obtain a gun in certain states? When you look at Missouri, the state has virtually no standards beyond the federal standards for gun sale and possession. And that is not unique among some of the states that we've looked at in the study that rank in the top 10. What's just as important is the fact that in Missouri, communities and jurisdictions that want to address this problem on a local level, say, for example, Kansas City, St. Louis, they can't do so because what's known as a statewide firearms preemption which means that no jurisdiction can pass a gun law tougher than the state standards. You know, we should point out here that your group advocates for gun control and you're highlighting access to firearms as a problem here. What do you think it's going to take to affect any sort of lasting change in a state like Missouri with the type of legal landscape that you're discussing here? I think in Missouri, it depends upon, first of all, the ongoing activities of grassroots advocates, community members, and other stakeholders to make sure their voices are heard, which they are. They work very hard every day at this, you know, preventing this type of violence. But on top of that, that the policymakers have to recognize that the state is in a crisis 
when you look at the numbers compared not just to the national levels, but to other states, it's just shocking. And so there's an understanding that there's a crisis that needs to be addressed, but it hasn't reached the uh, state policymaker level yet. Missouri is also home to one of the highest profile killings that fueled the Black Lives Matter movement. That is the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, which is near St. Louis. What do you say to black communities that feel that they cannot trust law enforcement and to those who may feel safer having a gun as a result? While that reaction can be understandable, the fact is that regardless of a person's race or ethnicity or sex, guns are rarely used uh, in self-defense, whether in justifiable homicides or in non-fatal prevention. And an unfortunate reality is that in the past two years, the gun industry has focused on uh, marketing to communities of color, Uh, Black Americans, uh, Latino Americans, Asian Americans in the context of COVID and episodes like you describe. This study is based on data from the year 2019, which is the most recent year from which data is available. What do you expect data from 2020 and 2021 to look like, particularly given that those two years track with the COVID pandemic? It's hard to say what the trends will reveal, but unfortunately, you know, we just know what other Agencies have reported the trends being reported, but we would not be surprised, obviously, if these numbers do go up. Josh Sugarman is the executive director of the Violence Policy Center. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. About four million children don't have health insurance in the U.S., so a fall on the playground and a broken arm could potentially cause financial catastrophe for a family. And if kids don't go to the doctor, that can mean missed shots, asthma getting out of control, or other illnesses getting worse. Now the Biden administration is set to spend a record amount of money to get more kids covered. NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. More than half of uninsured children actually already qualify for free health insurance through either Medicaid or CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. The challenge is to find those kids and help their parents sign up for coverage. Today, the Biden administration announced it's sending $49 million to community groups to do that work. Back to school is a great time for it, says Nicole Smith-Anderson of the Greater Flint Health Coalition. Their $1.5 million grant will fund outreach workers all over the county trying to find families wherever they can. Back to school fairs, any sort of meet the teacher nights when there's kindergarten roundup. In Michigan, she says the sign-up process for Medicaid and CHIP is pretty simple. She says it can take 30 minutes or less, but you don't have to do it on the spot. It can be a lot, right, when you're at a school fair and all these different people are giving you papers and there's a lot going on. So if we say, okay, we're going to call you tomorrow at whatever time when you're available, we're a lot more successful in getting that (laughs) taken care of. Smith Anderson's organization has gotten federal grants for this work before, but this year the Biden administration is sending out more money than ever. Chiquita Brooks-Lasher leads the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So many children, even though they're eligible, don't know it. Their parents don't know that they are eligible for coverage. There still needs to be so much education done. She says the Biden administration helped more adults get insured last fall on healthcare.gov by focusing on outreach workers who can walk people through the enrollment process one-on-one for free. 
And that's the same thing that we're trying to do here, really making sure we are using trusted messengers. And they're racing to beat a looming threat. When the COVID-19 public health emergency eventually ends, states will have the power to take people off the Medicaid rolls if they don't keep up with their paperwork. States haven't been able to do that since the pandemic started. Because of that, nearly 7 million children who have Medicaid right now may lose it, says Joan Alker of the Georgetown Center for Children and Families. So getting these outreach workers funded and connecting with families now is crucial, she says. This is absolutely good news that these grants are going out. It is the largest amount that we've seen. I think clearly the Biden administration has looked for the pennies under the couch to get this amount out this year. But Alker warns the feds can only do so much. But at the end of the day, states run Medicaid and CHIP. So it's going to be up to the governor of Georgia. It's going to be up to Governor DeSantis. It's going to be up to Governor Abbott in Texas, the states where we have some of the highest uninsured rates for children to see where those end up at. Making sure kids get health insurance and stay covered as pandemic protections wind down, she says, is going to take a massive effort. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 88 degrees in Boston now. It hit 90 plus in many communities today, including in Boston. Mercifully, it's not the steam heat of yesterday. Tonight, temperatures drop to the mid-70s, mostly clear skies. Hazy, hot, and humid tomorrow, 90 to 95 degrees. The heat index should be about 100 and then should be 85 to 90 on Cape Cod with an isolated thunderstorm possible. This is WBUR. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Great Freedom Adventures, curated cycling tours inspired by the history and nature of New England. North Shore and Cape Tours booking now. GreatFreedomAdventures.com. People living across the U.S. are paying more for gas and groceries. But one economist says Americans living outside the big cities are feeling a sharper bite from inflation. They're dipping into savings now, but if these prices continue, then they're going to start going into debt. So some Americans are wondering, should they stay or should they move? How rural America gets by in a bad economy? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Two former White House, or rather Trump White House officials, are scheduled to appear in a final primetime public hearing for the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. That hearing will go on despite Chairman Benny Thompson's positive COVID test. He will not attend, but his aides say he wants the hearing to go on as planned. That's exactly what Representative Pete Aguilar says the panel will do. Look, we're going to 
continue forward. Uh, that's what he's asked, uh, and that's what we'll do. Uh, we'll continue to refine uh, the script and, and make sure that uh, the hearing goes off without a hitch. Uh, that's uh, what we plan to do. The committee is expected to wrap up its summertime series of hearings with Thursday night's presentation, focusing specifically on what then-President Trump was doing for the three hours he was out of the public eye on January 6th, while many of his supporters were wreaking havoc on the Capitol. An Indiana abortion provider is taking a key step toward a potential defamation lawsuit against the state's attorney general. As NPR Sarah McCammon reports, the doctor is threatening to sue over statements that the state AG made related to her treatment of a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. In a letter to Indiana state officials, Dr. Bernard's attorney says her client has suffered harm as a result of Attorney General Todd Rakita's recent statements and says she's prepared to seek unspecified damages. After Dr. Bernard spoke publicly about treating a 10-year-old girl, Rakita suggested without evidence that Bernard had a history of failing to report abortions as required by state law. Documents obtained by NPR and other media outlets last week confirm Bernard reported that procedure. The letter, called a tort claim notice, is required before the doctor can file a defamation suit against the Indiana Attorney General. State officials have 90 days to respond. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Some positive company earnings reports have sent stock soaring. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. What's expected to be an official heat wave has begun. Boston reached 93 degrees today. That was at Logan Airport. It's the first of what may be six days of 90-plus degree weather in the Boston area. This is the third day so far this year that we've hit 90 degrees in Boston. A lot of people are heading to the coast this week to get relief from the heat. WBUR's Allie Germanning has this report from Wollaston Beach in Quincy. Even before noon, temperatures already approached 90 degrees, and walkers, runners, and bikers tried to squeeze in some exercise before it got too hot. Patrick Hines was stripped down to his bathing suit, riding along Quincy Shore Drive on a blue bike. His recommendation for beating the heat? Just get out, kick the feet, breathe the fresh air. If you have the ability to get near the seaside, the ocean, in any which way, it's uh, therapeutic both for the mind and body. Plenty of people are expected to take his advice and maybe take a dip in the water, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark and Ayanna Presley were arrested today during a protest outside the U.S. Supreme Court. A total of 16 members of Congress and 18 other people were arrested as they demonstrated for abortion rights. Capitol Police say they were blocking traffic and refused to leave. Congresswoman Clark says she is furious about the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, and that's the reason for her civil disobedience. Presley is vowing to continue to fight for abortion rights and to denounce what she calls a callous decision by the high court. The MBTA still has a long way to go in hiring new employees to fill a critical staffing shortage. During today's MBTA board meeting, T. General Manager Steve Poftak provided an update on 30 dispatcher positions the Transit Authority needs to fill. He says six out of 107 applicants are moving through a process known as pre-employment. 
These are people who are in training. Some folks do not make it through the training. Some people make a choice in the midst of training that this is not a job they want to do. So I, I want to be very careful. We're not counting these chickens before they're hatched. The staffing shortage is just one of the corrective actions the T has been required to make to, following a safety review by the Federal Transit Administration. One board member predicts the shortage will not be filled until sometime next year. Scorching temperatures through the evening hours only falling to the mid-70s overnight tonight should be a light wind for some modest relief. Tomorrow, about as harsh as today, hot and humid, back up to the low to mid-90s, feeling closer to 100. 88 degrees now in the Boston area at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone betterhelp.com slash public. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at duckduckgo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last month, it declared the constitutional right to an abortion no longer exists. And for many parents, the wall-to-wall news coverage about abortion rights meant that their kids were asking them new questions about the procedure and the politics. Some of them, like Megan Workman in Indiana, who has a six-year-old daughter, are just wondering where to even begin. I want it to be age-appropriate. I don't want to get into too much detail of what it actually is, but just knowing that she can choose if she wants to have a baby or not. So just mainly keeping it age appropriate, I would guess. Well, to answer many of your listener questions, we called up a few experts to help parents like Megan explain. Rena B. Patel is a parenting expert and licensed educational psychologist in San Diego, California. And Dr. Elise Berlin is a pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. So I want to start with you, Ms. Patel. What is your advice to someone like Megan Workman, who we just heard from? Like, what is the first step to approaching this topic with kids, you think? First of all, it's a question that many parents have, and it's important to find out what your child already knows, Mm -hmm. but use that guiding point. Ask your child as simple things as, Stephen, do you know where babies come from? But do it in a way that um, they're really guiding that conversation, and you're almost scaffolding. You're kind of filling in the pieces. Well, I am sort of wondering, now that we're talking about where do you even begin, like what is the right age to even start a conversation like this? Parents know your child the best. It shouldn't be something that you feel forced to do, but do understand when your child is of school age, History is already being taught. They are learning about current affairs, current events. So having those natural conversations is so important. Okay, well, so much of what you said is leading to our next question from Jacqueline Cuevas. She's a mom of three from Detroit, Michigan. The nine-year-old is a little confused as to why people would want to get an abortion. And she doesn't understand what happens once they get it. Where does the baby go? Who takes it? It's a lot of questions that I didn't know how to answer. So, Dr. Berlin, I want to turn to you because as a pediatrician, 
how might you explain an abortion procedure to a child? Mm -hmm. When I think about kind of how to respond um, to this mom, I might think about talking about that some parents need to end the pregnancy and that it, it might be better and healthier and safer for the parent to end the pregnancy. So I tend to use um, kind of terminology about the pregnancy and um, not refer so much around the baby, even though that can be where children go. Right. I do think it's okay for parents after they've shared what an abortion is as far as um, they're comfortable sharing to let young people know that people have a variety of views yes. about abortion. And also I think it's okay for the parents to share their views because young people do really look to the parents for anchoring on values. I wanted to talk more about that. Thank you so much for bringing that up because parents have told us that they are wrestling with how to help their kids talk about it with sensitivity if it does come up. Like take James Mehmet. He's a dad of four in Kaysville, Utah. And he's talking here about his seven-year-old daughter. I have a different opinion on it than most of the other people she can interact with. You know, we live in a very conservative area. All of my family that we live near is religious, and, and they definitely have an opposing view to mine on the abortion issue. And I, I want her to learn how to be sensitive talking about this stuff if it ever even does come up. Any advice for James, either of you? So... It's a great life lesson to teach um, children that it's okay to have whatever opinion that you have. There's no right or wrong. So it's important to allow them to create their own opinions, but be respectful for others, and then where and when to have these conversations with individuals. Mm -hmm. So our next question is from Meg Embry. Uh, she's a mother of two from Colorado, and she told us that she grew up evangelical, and this is her question. How do you invite your kids to wrestle with really complicated, painful, not black and white questions in a way that's curious and compassionate without just encouraging them to accept what you think about the issue? And Meg Embry is just one of many parents who reached out to us who had concerns about imposing their own beliefs on their children. And I'm just curious, Ms. Patel, what advice do you have for parents navigating this potential conflict of opinion and wanting their kids to make up their own minds about this issue? What I would really recommend is first, really understanding where you are in this whole process. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? Uh, so much um, has risen in terms of high-level emotion with the outcomes um, and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So check in with yourself first. Then allow for that openness and check in, empathize, validate what your child says. Um, I think it's important for parents to use the words, I feel, I see, I hear, because what does that do? It shares and shows that respectful dialogue happening and that you're letting your child know that you really do hear what they're saying, even though you might have an opposing view or opinion. Well, you know, we all talked about how much this conversation might change depending on the age of your child or how much your child actually knows. But I'm also wondering, like, how much of this conversation takes shape depending on the gender of your child. Um, Shamika Sims is a mother of a 14-year-old son from Topeka, Kansas, and she wrote to us and said one concern is, quote, making sure that he understands how these measures affect people with a uterus, him as a male, and his choices and responsibility for family planning. So, Dr. Berlin, I understand that you have two adolescent sons, and I'm just curious, like, what do you think personally? Should you as a parent have a different kind of conversation about abortion based on the gender of your kids? 
You know, I don't really think so. I think this is again about really listening to where your kids are. You know, we've talked about in our family um, abortion with our sons, and you know, there's there's not a perfect time or a perfect conversation. This is a journey, and I think if parents wait for the perfect time or when they have all the information, the risk is that they're not going to have the conversation, and somebody else will. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, as parents, we want to kind of share our values and share the information that we have and our point of view with our kids so that they are prepared to have conversations and process this information within the safety of their family first. Yeah. It can be very overwhelming. We have to give children, especially young children, just time to process and come back with questions. And we've got families who have multiple children at different ages. So I think it's very important also to think about what our little ones are hearing as the older ones are talking. And so do you want as parents to have some um, one-on-one dialogue um, just separate from the older kids? So they're able to hear and also share things that are at their age appropriate level is, is so important. That was Rena B. Patel, a parenting expert and licensed educational psychologist in San Diego, California, and Dr. Elise Berlin, a pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist from Columbus, Ohio. Thank you both so much for sharing this time with us. It was such a Thank pleasure. You. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Summer is a time for family gatherings, heading to the beach, and at one retreat in Delaware, maybe a few frights. An old-school amusement park called Funland is where a generation of thrill-seekers grew up screaming on the park's haunted mansion ride. And now they're bringing their own kids to enjoy the same classic attractions. NPR's Laurel Walmsley has this summer postcard. Unlike some of the other rides here along the boardwalk in Rehoboth Beach, the Haunted Mansion won't fling you into the air or flip you upside down. But still, its charms attract the most devoted fans and the longest lines. The spooky tour opened in 1980. So I joined the queue. That's where I meet Meredith Luzetti, who's snapping a selfie with her husband and kids with the Haunted Mansion behind them. I guess I was born in 76 and been coming here ever since, so. Really? Yeah, it's all a family thing. Luzetti's first time on the Haunted Mansion was when she was about six, and she can't begin to guess how many times she's ridden it. It's the nostalgia that keeps her coming back. And a lot of stuff is still the same, and my dad took movies of us, so we watch movies from the 80s with us going on the rides, and now my daughter's doing it, so it's fun to have generation after generation do it. Farther down the line is Levi Crossman, who's from the nearby town of Lewis. He says he used to go on the Haunted Mansion a lot when he was a kid. He's 12. At the end, there's um, a train or a bus and it honks and it's really loud. That's all I really remember. It did, yes. Well, this is my first time. Do you think I'm going to be scared? Probably not. So I climb aboard one of the ride's all-black cars, dangling from a track above, adorned with a skull and crossbones. A moment later, I'm plunged through the doors of the mansion into a very creepy scene. I'm in a red wallpapered room. It looks like a Victorian house. Things get very dark. Oh my gosh. There's a scary, (laughs) scary glow in the dark art and the skeletons moving. Plunged into darkness. Oh my gosh, I'm being sprayed with water. The ride is jerky, exhilarating fun, full of jump scares and weird scenes. 
and here since its inception, has been Randy Curry, a mechanic in the third generation of the family that's been running Funland since 1962. Some of the decor in the mansion is pretty DIY. Take the Frankenstein figure that lurks in one corner. He is just chicken wire and a wooden frame. And on top of that, his arms and legs are carpet tubes that I've fiberglassed. In the darkness of the ride, with its constant diversions, it's convincing enough to scare. But just a little. Curry says the ride was designed to be spooky and fun, but not overly frightening. I see one child exiting the ride, her cheeks wet with tears, and ask Aisha Robinson, who works here, if that's common. How often do you see kids come out of here crying? Every day. <laughs> but today's crying kid is next summer's screaming and laughing kid. And for all of them, Funland and its haunted mansion will hopefully be here for years to come, serving up summer memories along the boardwalk. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a new book that explores war, displacement, family, and the memories that can haunt us. In the forecast, the heat is on, and it should be all week long. Today's highs were well above 90 in some areas. Tonight should fall to the mid-70s, a light breeze to bring some relief. Tomorrow, high humidity, temperatures to match up around the low to mid-90s, but feeling more like 100. Could have a welcome thunderstorm Thursday afternoon, but the sun should rain for much of the day, up around 94. Friday, the heat wave presses on. A busy bridge over Route 128 in Needham is going to be closed tonight through early tomorrow. The Highland Avenue Bridge will shut down for utility work as part of a state project to improve traffic flow in Needham and nearby Newton. The closure begins at 8 tonight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required, restrictions apply. And Gentle Dental, with a mission to create healthy, confident smiles for life. Learn more about brace this summer at gentledental.com slash braces. When it comes to grocery shopping, spending less isn't so easy. Oftentimes they'll play music that's a little bit older because it brings up these nostalgic feelings and that is a positive experience for a lot of people. I'm Kimberly Adams, the art of making you buy more. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Years ago, the author Jamil John Kochai saw a satirical headline in The Onion. It read, FBI counterterrorism agent wistfully recalls watching 20-year-old Muslim American grow up. I thought it was totally funny, but also, like, oddly endearing. That joke gave him the premise for the title story in his new book, 
The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories. I was thinking about this character and I was, I was sort of watching him watch the family. That's where sort of the, the central relationship of the, of the story sort of builds up as this narrator begins to also feel a, a very real bond to this family. This family comes up again and again throughout Jamil John Kochai's short stories. It's largely autobiographical. Uh, my own family, um, we left uh, Afghanistan. Um, both my mother and my father's side came from a small village in Logar. Um, they, they experienced like um, a tremendous warfare uh, during in the early 1980s because of the Soviet invasion. There was, there was really horrific bombings and violence there. And so they were forced to flee uh, to Pakistan. Uh, from Pakistan, they eventually made it to Alabama and then from Alabama all the way here to, to uh, Sacramento, California. And so um, many, many of the stories in the collection do draw from uh, our personal experiences. You say the details of this family's experience are largely autobiographical, but also the stories include fantastical elements in which, you know, humans turn into animals or uh, somebody tries to rewrite their family history in a video game. How does fiction allow you to explore some of the experiences your family has had that maybe writing about these people in a more direct, literal way might not? Well, you know, it's funny because I've always found fiction to be sort of this very comforting space for me to be able to explore these memories. You know, if I were to face some head on in sort of like a personal essay or in a memoir or something like that, I don't know, I feel like I feel like that would almost be it would make me too vulnerable. And it would, that, that would be very difficult for me in a lot of ways. And so being able to have sort of the 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 the, the ability to to come at these stories and to think th through these stories in different ways, whether that's, you know, through a video game or through a resume or through, um, you know, magical realism, um, it allows me to sort of re-explore the, these, uh, these stories and, and, and these characters in new ways. You mentioned a resume. And so I, I, I want to talk about a story that is basically written as a series of resume entries, which uh, <laughs> in the many short stories I've read in my life is not something that I have ever seen before. Tell us about occupational hazards. Yeah, so basically it's it's written in the format of a resume and so it's it's this character's life given to you uh, over the course of a series of um, job occupations. And so there's, you know, it lists the job, the time period, and then underneath it says duties included. And then it basically tells you, um, uh, you know, what they did throughout this occupation. Over the course of this story, the reader comes to realize that the character is in a way your father and duties that begin with shepherd these jobs over the course of the lifetime go on to include merchant refugee newspaper delivery man and then it has this incredibly poignant ending how did you think about the arc of this story well you know it's i talked to my father before and so i'd had sort of this this vague idea about all these different jobs he'd had throughout his life just through conversations and when i finally wrote it down um the scope of it was so it was uh it was it was surprising to me and what i'd realized over the course of actually writing was that i understood how this character um, how much they sort of rooted their identity in their relationship to their labor and how, you know, towards the end of the story, um, when, when, when the main character is no longer able to, to make money through their labor, is no longer able to identify through their labor, it's not only like this, this financial or, or, you know, this circumstantial crisis, but for the character, it's this existential crisis because their identity was always rooted in their ability to labor. And so that's where, that's when I finally understood that, like, this story can work. Like, that's where the heart of the story is. 
Wow. There's a character who comes up in many of these stories uh, named Watuk. Will you tell us about who he was? And I say was in the past tense because he's mostly represented by his absence. That's right. You know, Watuk was my, my father's younger brother. Um, they they were very close. He was only two, two years uh, younger than him. And uh, they grew up in Logar, Afghanistan together. And, you know, his best friend in the whole world. And he was someone who, um, you know, uh, uh, God rest his soul, he, he, he was murdered during the uh, Soviet occupation. Um, he was killed in 1982. And it was a loss that lingered in our household um, for decades afterward. I remember, you know, growing up, we always had a photograph of what there's only there was only two photographs of him in existence. And one of them always hung in our prayer room at, at our house. And so whenever I would pray, he'd just be there watching me. And so he was sort of this um, this specter, this figure in our household that had just always been there. And his story was always given to us like in bits and pieces because, because it was so difficult for them to be able to tell this particular story. There are so many different kinds of hauntings in this book. There is the presence of Watak, which you describe as a kind of haunting. There is the, the title story, The Haunting of Haji Hotak. But also, it feels like in some ways, the role of the Americans and the Soviets before them in Afghanistan is a bit of a haunting. You know, like U.S. troops never take center stage, but Afghan characters refer to killer robots in the sky, or they say that Kabul still belongs to America. How did you think of the role that these invading countries play in the story of Afghanistan that you're telling? The thing is, is I didn't want my stories or or my writing in general to be sort of um overcome by these invading forces right i i I always i wanted to focus on the characters first and foremost um the afghan characters i wanted to focus on their lives and their relationships um but of course there's always that context of of the occupation itself whether that's the american occupation or um the soviet occupation before that and so um you know they they are sort of these these lingering presences these these ghosts in their lives and so even as they're um you know eating dinner or or having a fight or whatever else it is in, in terms of the plot of the story, in terms of these different relationships between the characters, um, I always try to make sure that the that the looming presence of the occupation is always there as well. I don't want that to be forgotten, but I also don't want it to overwhelm the story. And so whether it is a beloved friend who was killed at an early age or an invading occupying force, how do you think about the idea of haunting in your life? in understanding your your family's history that you wrestle with in these stories. When I first began to conceptualize what a story was, it was oftentimes it was rooted in these stories of loss. It was rooted in, in these stories of, of death and these stories of um, of, uh, of warfare. But then also these stories of like, you know, profound joy and happiness in this in this village before the war. And so it was these it was these two separate kinds of hauntings, this this land and this time lost to war. And then but then it was also the war itself. Those two forms of hauntings were always always there for me. And so I just sort of had to reach back and and grab it and, and put it on the page. Jamil Dunkochai's new book is The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories. Thank you for talking with us about it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. 
Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from X-Chair, ergonomic home and office chairs. At home or in the office, X-Chair offers dynamic variable lumbar support, as well as Elamax heating, cooling, and massage technology. At xchair.com. And from iDrive, with remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, assisting those working from home, and also enabling remote assistance for customers. At remotepc.com. This is WBUR. Withering temperatures through the evening hours, only falling to the mid-70s overnight tonight. Could have a light wind, though. Tomorrow, just about as harsh as today has been. Hot and humid, back up to the low to mid-90s, but feeling closer to 100 tomorrow. And for Thursday, a thunderstorm could provide a bit of relief in the afternoon. Otherwise, bright sunshine, breezy and hot, still around 94 degrees. No relief on Friday, and it could stay ugly hot through the weekend. The Cape, by the way, is only a little bit better off. It should be between 85 and 90 degrees tomorrow on Cape Cod. 88 degrees now in Boston at 459. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Justice Department is investigating Russian war crimes in Ukraine. These are challenging investigations, but we are used to challenging investigations and prosecutions. The leader of the efforts best known for tracking down Nazis who are still hiding decades after World War II. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, some COVID patients who doubt mainstream media and standard medical advice have found dangerous theories and alternatives online from doctors and natural healers who are more than willing to sell them unproven treatments. With abortion access changing in many states, college health centers are trying to figure out their rights and responsibilities when they counsel students who become pregnant. And a diner in China spotted what looked like dinosaur footprints in the stone patio of a restaurant. Paleontologists have now confirmed the discovery and say the tracks are roughly 100 million years old. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In Ukraine, the refugee crisis continues. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Zaporizhia. He reports people continue to spend days fleeing Russian-occupied areas while attempting to make their way into Ukrainian territory. Here in this parking lot, roughly a thousand people a day are arriving from occupied parts of Ukraine that are now taken over by the Russians. We talked to a 16-year-old girl who traveled here all alone to get to get to this place because she's so desperate to get out of there. Other people said they went through about 12 different Russian checkpoints where people were Some of them strip searched, uh, documents were demanded. Some people say they were tortured. One of the volunteers who coordinates this center said most people who arrive here don't even know where they're going to go next. She said they're fleeing to nowhere. NPR's Jason Bobian in Zaporizhia. Federal advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have voted unanimously today to endorse a different kind of COVID-19 vaccine, one they hope will entice more people to get vaccinated 
Here's NPR's Rob Stein. The vaccine is made by a company called Novavax. The two-dose vaccine uses a traditional technology instead of the mRNA used in vaccines made by Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech. So public health officials hope the Novavaxine might appeal to people who have been hesitant to get vaccinated because the mRNA technology is so new. This has become especially urgent as the number of people catching the virus and getting so sick they're ending up in the hospital has started to rise again because yet another, even more contagious strain of Omicron has taken over in the U.S. Rob Stein, NPR News. Britain today is sweltering under an intense heat wave shattering old records. The U.K. Met Office Weather Agency there saying it logged a reading of 40.3 degrees Celsius or more than 104 degrees Fahrenheit in Connonsby in eastern England. It's the hottest temperature ever registered in the U.K. Twitter to Elon Musk are slated to face off in a five-day trial in October over the billionaire's change of heart about buying the social media company. NPR Shannon Bond reports Twitter suing Musk to force him to go through with the $44 billion deal. A Delaware judge granted Twitter's request for a quick trial, saying, quote, delay threatens irreparable harm to the company. The ruling is a blow to Elon Musk, whose lawyers argued any trial should wait until February to give them time to dig into Twitter's user data. Musk has said he's walking away from the $44 billion purchase because of his concerns over fake accounts. Twitter's lawyers argued that's a pretext for Musk to get out of the deal and that the uncertainty caused by his threat is hurting the company. Twitter says the only question is whether Musk broke the legal agreement he signed when he agreed to buy the company back in April. Shannon Bond, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WPUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley was arrested today as she and others protested last month's decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. The demonstration today took place outside the U.S. Supreme Court. Presley was cheered as Capitol Police led her away. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark, the assistant speaker of the House, was also arrested at the protest. In a tweet, Clark said extremist Republicans are determined to take us back in time and to take away our rights. She said police can arrest her, but we won't allow them to arrest our freedom. Sixteen members of Congress and 18 others were arrested. Capitol Police say the demonstrators were blocking traffic and refused to comply with requests to stop doing so. Both Presley and Clark's offices say they have been released. Community leaders in Provincetown are mobilizing to distribute the monkeypox vaccine. Massachusetts now has more than 50 cases of monkeypox, also known as MPV. WBRI Sydney Bowles reports it's a familiar process for leaders in a town that's been at the forefront of disease response for decades. MPV is primarily spread through contact with virus sores or bodily fluid, and it's largely, but not entirely, spreading among gay and bisexual men. President of the AIDS support group of Cape Cod, Dan Gates, says the response has relied on networks built during the HIV-AIDS crisis. As it was in the 80s and 90s, it has been for the last few years. It's all about that community response. That is always the most effective way to move forward. Gates says the most effective outreach has been through bartenders and servers who can efficiently get information out to large numbers of people. Provincetown has already vaccinated about 1,400 people against MPV. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. The heat is on across the Boston area. Logan Airport saw a high of 93 today, and lucky us, there's plenty more heat and humidity ahead this week. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce has details. 
Day one of our heat wave is underway. Temperatures already hitting 90 in the city of Boston and many surrounding cities and towns. Tonight will drop back into the mid-70s under mostly clear skies. Tomorrow, humidity goes up and our temperatures rise into the low to mid-90s again. Heat index values in the upper 90s, even over 100 in some spots. An isolated thunderstorm possible, 85 to 90 on Cape Cod. And our heat wave will last through the upcoming weekend with highs in the low to mid-90s through Sunday. And in the Boston area right now, 88 degrees at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Eli Rosenbaum is best known for leading the Justice Department unit that tracked down Nazis in hiding long after World War II. Last month, Attorney General Merrick Garland tapped Rosenbaum to lead a team investigating more recent atrocities, war crimes in Ukraine. There are surprising and distressing overlaps between the World War II Nazi crimes and what's happening now. When I spoke to Rosenbaum today, he told me about a man named Boris Romanchenko, who until recently was living in Kharkiv, Ukraine. He was a prisoner of the Nazis during World War II, was held at four different Nazi concentration camps. Miraculously, Mr. Romanchenko survived the torments of his Nazi captivity, and he returned home to Kharkiv. During the war, Russians and Ukrainians fought together and died together. In Mr. Romanchenko's case, his survival fortunately occurred, at least until this past March, when a Russian missile struck his apartment building in Kharkiv, and he was killed at the age of 96. The law only allows Rosenbaum's team to investigate the relatively few cases of war crimes involving U.S. nationals in Ukraine. But he told me his team will be sharing information with war crimes investigators from dozens of other countries. These are challenging investigations, but we are used to challenging investigations and prosecutions. What we probably won't have very much of is the kind of evidence that we had in the Nazi cases, which was primarily captured Nazi documents, mostly because uh, not much is reduced to paper writing anymore. On the other hand, there are electronic communications and the various governments have advanced capabilities to uh, intercept and analyze such communications. So we will have good cases, I'm convinced about. Just to give us a specific idea of how this works, uh, you take a place like Bucha, where Ukrainians returned after the Russian retreat to find what appeared to be horrific crimes committed against civilians. What would your team do in that context to try to gather evidence for a war crimes prosecution? Well, if we were investigating that scenario, of course, you'd want to speak with witnesses. You'd want to see what communications might have been intercepted. You would want to establish the order of battle for that time and place, what units on the Russian side were present, whom they reported to. And of course, there would be forensic analysis of the remains and crime scene reconstruction potentially. When you were gathering evidence to prosecute Nazis, you were looking at crimes that had been committed decades ago. These are crimes that have been committed in a place that is still an active war zone. How much more difficult is it to gather evidence and prosecute these cases while the war is still being fought? 
The fact that the war is still underway obviously brings new challenges to the work, but it doesn't prevent us from doing capable investigations. So unlike the cases that I've worked on in the past, the offenses are ongoing and the crime scenes in some instances are going to be difficult to reach or, or even for some time impossible. Um, also in the World War II cases, the Nazi government of Germany was succeeded by a responsible German government that acknowledged Germany's responsibility for wartime crimes, including the genocide of European Jews. That post-war government provided our agency with invaluable investigative assistance. Will the Russian government provide uh, assistance to investigations anytime soon? The question virtually answers itself. If the perpetrators in these cases are often Russian troops who have returned to Russia, what is the chance of anyone actually being held accountable of victims getting any real justice? I'm optimistic that justice will be obtained. Uh, it doesn't always happen right away. There are many, many instances of perpetrators of atrocity crimes, even the leading figures in a government like Milosevic being brought to the bar of justice. It takes time. Uh, same with Charles Taylor and others. But um, I am optimistic that what Attorney General Garland said when we were together with DOJ colleagues and State Department colleagues in Ukraine last month is um, to be reality in these cases. And he said, quote, there is no hiding place for war criminals. What are the special challenges to prosecuting war crimes as opposed to a typical criminal trial? Well, commonly, the war crimes are committed in a manner intended to physically eliminate those people who, had they survived, would normally have been inclined to cooperate with a government investigation. Witnesses on the victim side are hard to find. Some people simply cannot bear to reopen those psychological wounds. We've had that experience in the World War II cases. Not every Holocaust survivor is prepared to talk about their victimization publicly. That leaves you sometimes with uh, cohort witnesses, uh, comrades, so to speak, of the perpetrators as your best witnesses. And they, of course, are reluctant in the extreme to testify lest they incriminate themselves. As somebody who spent much of your career prosecuting Nazi war crimes, what is your reaction when you hear Vladimir Putin say this invasion of Ukraine is an effort to denazify that country? When I hear that, for me, it's it's like fingernails on the chalkboard times a thousand. It's cruel. It's it's false. This is not a Nazi government by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think uh, after almost 40 years of investigating and prosecuting Nazi perpetrators, I know a Nazi when I see one. Th this is yet another outrage from the Kremlin. Eli Rosenbaum is the Counselor for War Crimes Accountability at the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Good to be with you. The Supreme Court's ruling last month on abortion has created uncertainty and confusion in many places, including on college campuses. In many states, university health centers are trying to understand what level of care they can provide to newly pregnant students before school starts back up this fall. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. If a pregnant student walks into the health center at the University of Michigan, the response they receive is never exactly the same. That's because health workers don't really follow a script. We take those conversations in the context of that human being who's sitting in front of us. Dr. Susan Dwyer Ernst is chief of gynecology at the university's health service. 
She says her questions shift based on the person. We need to understand their past medical history and assess whether they've been having regular periods. Are they at risk for um, ectopic pregnancy or miscarriage? Lately, Dr. Ernst has been thinking a lot about how those conversations with student patients may have to change. Michigan is one of several states with long dormant abortion laws that weren't enforced. But now, as abortion bans take effect, some university health providers are trying to figure out their role in the changing legal landscape. We're currently working with our legal team to actually lay out the appropriate scripts so that we do stay within the law. While in the vast majority of places, universities do not provide abortions, most do offer counseling to pregnant students and try to help them understand all of their options. Some centers help to arrange travel to clinics and offset the cost of the prescription or procedure. But now, in some places, even that is in jeopardy. Some states have criminalized traveling and aiding and abetting traveling. Kimberly Harris teaches constitutional law with a focus on reproductive rights at Texas Tech University. She says most states have laws that make it illegal to aid or abet in a crime. That means you can't, for example, help someone rob a bank. So if abortions are criminalized, it places health workers in a difficult position. I don't know how the courts will rule on that, but it's something that is making people worry. Bigger schools like Texas Tech and Michigan have resources to deal with these worries. They have legal teams to help parse through confusing language. But some small rural colleges don't have all that support. We are a very small private college and we don't have a health center. That's Christine Preziosi. She's at Prescott College in central Arizona. Primarily our students on campus um, seek health care within the community. She says that currently some students wind up driving nearly two hours to reach a Planned Parenthood. The closest are in Flagstaff and Phoenix. But with Roe overturned, Arizona's attorney general has said that a century-old law banning abortions is now enforceable. He's working to remove an injunction that has blocked the law for nearly 50 years. Outside of Arizona, the closest Planned Parenthood is four hours away in California. But even if students can get there, there's still a very large concern. Confidentiality. I think it's the fear of being tracked if a student is leaving one state to go to another. And will the college be asked um, any questions about them traveling for reproductive health care? How do we help protect that? Preziosi says she doesn't have all the answers yet. This landscape is new for administrators and students in Arizona. At Texas A&M, where the University Health Center says it does not manage pregnancy, some students are figuring it out on their own. My name is Namisha Srikant. I'm a senior public health major at Texas A&M University. She's the president of Free Aggies, a student organization focused on reproductive rights. She spends her week trying to do her part by giving out contraceptives in unmarked brown paper bags, including Plan B which is considered a contraceptive, but some advocates fear could soon become the next battle in the fight over abortion. Shrikanth says some students are afraid to buy these products at the student health center. So if you do go into the pharmacy there, what if someone sees you buying a Plan B? Some, some people are just not comfortable with that. Shrikanth and her organization paused their services after Roe was overturned to make sure they were still in the clear. But a few weeks ago, they started back up 
and don't plan to stop anytime soon. We'll be providing services until we are told that we cannot legally anymore. With many colleges and universities rethinking their policies and some avoiding the issue altogether, student groups like Shrikanth's could become a vital alternative. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, COVID patients finding black market ivermectin. That story is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. Even Wall Street was hot today. The Dow gained nearly 2.5%, 754 points, to finish the day at 31,827. S&P rose a little more to 2 and 3 quarters percent. It settled at 39.37. The Nasdaq picked up even more territory, over 3%, to finish the day at 11,713. City of Medford has agreed to host community deal with Mystic Cultivation to build the city's first marijuana cultivation establishment. The facility will be an indoor growing site located on Mystic Avenue. The company still needs a special permit approval from the Medford Zoning Board of Appeals and approval from the State Cannabis Control Commission. Medford already has two recreational marijuana retail businesses. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com slash GBFB. Searing temperatures through the evening hours, only falling to the mid-70s overnight tonight. Should be a light wind tonight. And then for tomorrow, hot, humid, back up to the low to mid-90s, feeling closer to 100. Thursday could have a thunderstorm in the afternoon, providing a bit of relief. Otherwise, bright sunshine, breezy and hot, still around 94 degrees. 88 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, with the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182 horsepower engine. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. COVID hospitalizations are once again on the rise thanks to a new subvariant. But not everyone wants to go to the ER if they get seriously ill. And for Americans who don't trust the medical establishment, there is a network of doctors and natural healers ready to push unproven cures for COVID. NPR's Jeff, Brum- NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on the black market for bogus COVID treatments. Stephanie died of COVID. But she didn't have to. She was 75, lived on Long Island. A few years ago, she was sucked into a world of conspiracy theories. When COVID came, it got worse. Stephanie's daughter, Lori, remembers what her mother used to tell her about the vaccines. Everybody who got vaccinated is going to die. We're only using first names to protect the family from online harassment. Because she feared the vaccines, Stephanie refused to get one. Then, just before last Thanksgiving, she caught COVID. She was 
really not feeling well. And I was like, you, you know, just go to the doctor. But Stephanie didn't go. She was plugged into an alternative medical network. It's a small group of fringe doctors, natural healers, and internet personalities who reject COVID vaccines, even though the CDC currently estimates that unvaccinated individuals are six times more likely to die of COVID. There's just tons of papers in, in journals showing that the vaccines are safe and effective. They are not. They are not safe or effective. That's one of these vaccine deniers speaking on a conservative podcast. He's a doctor named Pierre Corey. In his alternate medical universe, there is another drug that cures COVID. It's called ivermectin. People who've used ivermectin, their license have been threatened. I have eight complaints to my medical board. I don't know what's going to happen to my license. There's a good reason his medical license might be under investigation. Everyone from the American Medical Association to the Food and Drug Administration tell doctors not to prescribe ivermectin for COVID. David Gorski is a physician at Wayne State University of Michigan. He says ivermectin was tested early on in the pandemic. It doesn't work. The non-fraudulent, non-messed up clinical trials are all pretty uniformly negative. Gorski is a cancer surgeon. For years before COVID, he tracked doctors who offered alternative cures for cancers, and he sees plenty of parallels. Many of those pushing ivermectin promote it as a miracle cure. In the case of Pierre Corey, he offers personal consultations to sick COVID patients for $400. It all sounds really familiar to Dr. Gorski. COVID's no different than quackery going back centuries. Corey did not respond to NPR's questions in time for our deadline, but he's been everywhere on right-wing media promoting ivermectin. And people like Stephanie were paying attention. In text messages, Stephanie's friends were passing around an ivermectin-based treatment that Corey helped develop. Timothy Mackey is a professor at the University of California, San Diego, who studies online pharmacies. He says ivermectin promoters have spent months hyping the drug. They're creating demand. And this demand is being, um, you know, circulated in all these different online groups. It's hard to quantify how many people are seeking out ivermectin on the black market. It's not something easy to track. But Mackey believes that many Americans are affected. There's probably, you know, thousands of people, tens and thousands of people that have looked for drugs, tried to buy something, maybe been defrauded, and at worst, maybe even been uh, harmed from these products. And one of the people who sought out these drugs was Stephanie. A friend gave her the name of a woman in Florida who was willing to sell her ivermectin and some other unproven COVID drugs. Stephanie's order came to $390. She was just waiting for the pills and really did not want to do anything else. Lori's mom was getting sicker and sicker and refusing to go to the hospital. Lori was worried that she'd invested so much in these mail-order pills. And I was like, who'd you buy it from? Because I had read a lot of stuff about, you know, people getting it illegally. And she's like, I got it from a doctor. And I was like, you sure it's a doctor? And she was like, yeah, it's definitely a doctor. Except it wasn't a doctor. The woman's name was Elizabeth Starr Miller. According to her LinkedIn profile, she's a quantum healer who works as a loan officer. In text messages shared with NPR by Stephanie's family, Miller repeatedly told Stephanie to be wary of the hospital. Quote, my concern with you going to a hospital is they will not give you the medication that you need, she said. These hospitals are corrupt. Meanwhile, the drugs weren't arriving. After a few days, Stephanie worried she might be getting conned. Nothing came for me today. Are you sure we're not being scammed? She wrote, I would never scam anyone, Miller responded. 
Stephanie became so ill she had to be rushed to the local hospital. That same day, the drugs arrived, stuffed inside a plain brown envelope. And when Lori looked at them, she found ivermectin that wasn't licensed for use in the U.S. The pills appeared to be made by Indian pharmaceutical companies. Except when NPR shared photos of one of the packets with pharmaceutical researcher Tim Mackey, he wasn't even sure that the Indian company had made them. It looks highly suspect the way this pill pack is is kind of set up to begin with. Mackey points to one stamp on the pack. It's a real certification in India, but he's also seen it before on fake pills from overseas. Once you see this mark here, um, you pretty much are going to throw out that sample. I called Elizabeth Starr Miller, the woman who sold Stephanie the suspicious drugs. I wanted to learn more about how she came to get the pills. At first, she told me she had nothing to do with them. I don't prescribe the medicine. Someone else does and ships it from here. You shipped the medicine. The, you sent her the tracking number. I have the tracking number. Okay, I'm not going to go into this because that woman went into the hospital and after I repeatedly told her not to go into the hospital... The call went dead. A few minutes later, though, she called me back. I promised to the bottom of my heart, bottom of God, I would never hurt her or anyone else, sir, ever. Miller told me she is one of well over 100 doctors, homeopathic healers, and online pharmacists willing to sell ivermectin. She claims she consulted a doctor about Stephanie, but she says that doctor has since died of cancer, and she had no notes from the meeting. She says she believed the drugs would help, and that she can't be blamed for Stephanie's death. This is a grown woman who made, made the choice, asked for it, and I was just trying to help her. I was not trying to hurt her. I would never... I don't hurt anybody. Stephanie's faith in the unproven cures cost her valuable time. Doctors who treated her at the hospital told NPR they believe she wasted critical days waiting for them. Stephanie declined, she grew weaker, and eventually she succumbed to COVID just a few days after Christmas. I called Lori to let her know that the drugs Stephanie had ordered weren't FDA approved and were highly suspect. Wow, that is so sad. Oh my God. I just, that's, I just feel like it's so abusive. So bad. Lori and the rest of Stephanie's family have begun to heal in the months following her death, but she remains angry that both misinformers and profiteers continue to operate promoting unproven treatments to the public. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Every day on our Consider This podcast, we break down one big issue in the news. Today, how investigators may go about documenting war crimes in Ukraine. Search for Consider This every afternoon from NPR. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Tonight, Major League Baseball's all-star game. The Sox will be well represented. Raphael Devers is in the starting lineup. Xander Bogarts and J.D. Martinez will be on the bench for the American League. The game in Los Angeles starts at 8 p.m. 88 degrees now in Boston. It hit 90-plus in many communities today, including in Boston. Mercifully, though, it's not the steam heat of yesterday. Tonight, temperatures drop to the mid-70s, mostly clear skies. Hazy, hot, and humid tomorrow. Highs from 90 to 95 degrees, but the heat index should be around 100. 
and then on Cape Cod, 85 to about 90 degrees, an isolated thunderstorm possible tomorrow. 88 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in medical, regulatory, and other groups at vrtx.com. In decisions involving state funding for religious schools and prayer on a high school football field, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court says it is defending religious liberty. But for some, that seems more like an attack. We live in a secular country that doesn't privilege religion over non-religion. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, the unseparation of church and state. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Pentagon is preparing to unveil another weapons package for Ukraine as it battles Russia's invasion. Speaking to reporters from the White House this afternoon, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, says Russia is laying the groundwork for the annexation of Ukrainian territory. It's captured. Here Kirby talks about what will likely happen next. Russia is installing illegitimate proxy officials in the areas of Ukraine that are under its control. And we know their next moves. First, these proxy officials will arrange sham referenda on joining Russia. Then, Russia will use those sham referenda as a basis to try to claim annexation of sovereign Ukrainian territory. Today, Russia's President Vladimir Putin won staunch support from Iran for his country's military campaign in Ukraine as both allies face crippling Western sanctions. Near Arizona, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation is investigating a transformer fire at the Hoover Dam today, but as NPR's Debbie Elliott reports, no one was hurt. Video posted on Twitter showed an explosion and plumes of smoke on the Arizona side of the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River. Regional Director Jacqueline Gould with the Bureau of Reclamation says the Hoover Fire Brigade extinguished the fire in about 30 minutes after the A-5 transformer caught fire at 10 a.m. Pacific time. She says there are no injuries to visitors or employees at the massive hydroelectric dam. Gould says there's no risk to the power grid. Built in the 1930s, the Hoover Dam generates power for parts of California, Nevada, and Arizona. A spokesman says tours have been canceled for the day, and engineers are on site trying to determine the cause of the fire. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street after some strong corporate earnings reports. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two Massachusetts congresswomen were arrested today as they demonstrated outside the U.S. Supreme Court. Capitol Police say the group of 34 people, including 16 members of Congress, was blocking traffic. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Catherine Clark were taking part in what they called a nonviolent civil disobedience act- action in support of abortion rights. Both have been released from custody. Presley says the Supreme Court has been relentless in stripping away reproductive freedom. Clark says she is furious and was heartbroken by last month's ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade and that she will fight for a federal right to abortion. Meanwhile, in response to the Roe ruling, members of Massachusetts' U.S. House delegation are expected to vote this evening to protect same-sex marriage rights nationwide. They have also plans to vote this week to enshrine the right to contraception federally. As WBR's Amanda Beeland tells us, some members of the delegation are concerned the concurring opinion in last month's ruling could signal a threat to other rights. Congresswoman Lori Trahan says the time for action is now. We're not just 
going to stand by while an extremist minority tries to undo decades of progress and take away the rights of millions of Americans. At the same time, Trahan says solutions will take time. I don't think that this is going to be a fight that we win overnight. Trahan says that fight means action by Congress and from voters at the ballot box. She says she and her House colleagues are working on the latter right now. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. The cost to buy a home in Massachusetts continues to climb. The latest report from the Massachusetts Association of Realtors finds the median price for a single-family home last month was $629,000. That's more than 9% higher than this time last year. However, president of the association, Dawn Ruffini, says she thinks the housing market may be starting to settle. She says even though prices are still increasing, the rate of increase has slowed. It's not as frenzied. Um, Unfortunately, the interest rates and inflation are pricing some buyers out of the market. So it's giving a little bit of relief in terms of pressure um, for competition. New listings for single-family homes are down by nearly 4 percent compared to last year. Closed sales are down by more than 10 percent year over year. High heat this evening, only falling to the mid-70s overnight tonight. Should be a light wind around for some modest relief. Tomorrow, just about as scorching as today. Hot and humid, back up in the low to mid-90s, feeling closer to 100. Thursday, a thunderstorm could provide a little bit of relief in the afternoon. Otherwise, bright sunshine, breezy, and hot still around 94 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Ever since the war in Ukraine began, the West has been trying to consolidate opposition to Russia. Well, today Russian President Vladimir Putin worked to marshal his own base of international support. In Tehran, he met with the presidents of Iran and Turkey. These are countries that don't always align with Russia or with each other. Former U.S. Ambassador to Russia Michael McFaul joins us to parse the diplomacy. Good to have you back. Thanks for having me. It seems like most of the public statements coming out of these meetings focus on Syria, not Ukraine. So how central do you think Ukraine was to Putin deciding to make this trip to Iran? Well, formally, the three countries were meeting because they have for several years to try to manage the crisis, the war in Syria. Not very effectively, but they do that from time to time. So that's the reason why they're meeting. But I think the big issue on the table, of course, was Ukraine. And in two ways, it's very striking. On the one hand, Putin is getting military assistance from Iran. (laughs) That's the reverse of what it usually is. And on the other hand, he's meeting with Mr. Erdogan, uh, the head of Turkey, who on the one hand is talking to Putin about issues uh, related to Ukraine. And on the other hand, is providing military assistance to Ukraine at the same time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, given that Turkey is a member of NATO, what are we to make of President Erdogan's involvement in these meetings? It's very complicated because on the one hand, he is a member of NATO. He is providing very effective drones to the Ukrainian military. On the other hand, he's not supporting sanctions uh, and he's talking directly to Mr. Putin. I just saw their press spray and they, they sound very cordial. And he is trying to play a mediating role, particularly with respect to the export of Ukrainian grain 
and Russian grain to the outside world. And maybe, we don't know for sure, but they may have achieved a breakthrough on that front. Do you think it's coincidence that Putin visited Iran just after Biden went to Saudi Arabia? Not a coincidence. I mean, very striking. I mean, this is only the second trip abroad since the war. Let me rephrase that. Since his invasion of Ukraine began on February 24th, we should remember he invaded Ukraine. It wasn't just the Russia-Ukrainian war. But I think coming in the wake of President Biden's visit and shoring up our relationship with our partners in the Middle East, uh, Putin is now doing the same. You know, it reminds me a bit of the Cold War, East versus West. Uh, the NATO bloc, the European bloc, the democratic bloc in Europe is stronger and tighter than ever before. But you also see Putin strengthening his relationships with China and Iran on this trip with a couple countries like Turkey in between. The NATO alliance has been a clear, strong, stable alliance for a long time with some changes around the edges. How new is this kind of Russia-Iran-China axis that is forming? Well, first, NATO has been around for a long time, but Putin has done a ton to strengthen it since he invaded Ukraine. Two new members, more solidarity than ever before. And as a result of that, he is seeking deeper ties with countries like China and Iran. That troika of autocracies uh, has been together for a long time. They've done military exercises. But as a result of this war, I see things coalescing to a much greater degree. Uh, the liberal democracies on the one hand and these dictatorships on the other. There's a big economic piece of this puzzle as the West puts sanctions on Russia. Russia and Iran are both oil-producing countries. Um, How do the Western sanctions affect the dynamics here? Well, now you have Iran and Russia both being the most sanctioned countries by Western democracies in the world. They share military ties together that have gotten deeper since Putin's invasion of Ukraine, and that the idea that Iran will send drones, armed drones to Russia, uh, deepens that alliance in a bilateral way, back and forth way. It used to be that Russia just gave Iran arms. Now that Iran is giving Russia arms, that's a new dimension. But the big play here is between Russia and China. Uh, As Russia faces increased sanctions on all dimensions of its economic relations with Europe, You've already seen it, closer ties to China. And my prediction is that that is going to grow over the years, where you're really de facto going to see two economic blocks with Russia closely tied to China and virtually cut off from Europe and the, and the United States. That's former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall. He's now at Stanford University. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. The Showtime talk show, Jesus and Marrow, abruptly announced yesterday that it was ending after four seasons. The hosts, The Kid Marrow and Jesus Nice, were a charismatic duo. Two guys from the Bronx who met on Twitter, hit it off, and started a podcast where they roasted rappers, basketball players, and other pop culture figures. And as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, the two ended up changing the landscape of late-night TV. The end of the show, the duo, the brand, all of it kind of came as a surprise, seeing as in the latest season, they came out with a string of top-tier, as they'd call it, illustrious guests. 
Derek Jeter, Wanda Sykes, Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington in the house. That is right. Make some noise, a living legend in the building. And the thing about this Denzel interview is that it really encapsulates what made Jesus and Mero stand out in the world of late night TV. Washington was hitting up all the shows to promote his latest movie, Macbeth. And on those shows, he'd recite Shakespeare and talk about the joys of acting, which he did on Jesus and Mero. But the duo also had him talking about growing up around the Bronx, the best pizza places along the two train, and the women who'd approach him after Broadway shows. And it was about an 80-something-year-old woman. She said, boy, if I was about three years younger. The Cougars is straight looking, you know, sizing me up. <laughs> Yo. Checking the package. They <laughs> brought such a different energy to the late night space. That's Sonia Saraya, a former television critic who reviewed Jesus and Marrow's first season on Showtime for Vanity Fair, calling it, quote, a breath of fresh air even in the ever more crowded landscape of late night comedy. The late night space has been kind of dominated by very similar personalities and honestly even like sort of similar visuals. A white guy in a suit, behind a desk, maybe with a mug or something to the side. Jesus and Mero was different. It was two men who were from the Bronx who brought their style and their aesthetic, which was very different from what we saw in mainstream late night TV. Um, And then also really found a way to bring the audience into that space. Jesus Nice and the Kid Mero, real names Daniel Baker and Joel Martinez, met on Twitter and in 2013 started a podcast. Originally, it was called Jesus vs. Mero. Yo, what's good, man? It's the Jesus vs. Mero show. Yep. premiere, world premiere. We got a red carpet outside right now. Which eventually became Bodega Boys. If I, if you put a gun on Instagram in New York, the cops, there's a good chance the cops will find you and kick in your door. (laughs) And what differentiated them in the podcast space was their chemistry, their ability to pull from their shared experience of being black in the Bronx and immediately join in on each other's riffs. Officer Buckowski is on, he's in the 47 precinct right now on Facebook looking for guns, pot, yeah, marijuana. Prosciutto, uh, come over here. Look at this. Look at this over here. Look at this guy. Okay, the Kid Mero. Oh. Kid Mero over here has the 4-5 oh. ACP. He's taking look, the photos. Look at this. Look at this guy. He I thinks got he's some a throwback old. Thursday when I, throw, when I thought you back against the holding cell. All right, that's a throwback Thursday. They got big, especially on Black Twitter, which led to a TV show, first on Viceland and then on Showtime. The rumor mill is currently churning as to whether the two are still a team or if they're still friends. But what's a fact is that they'll leave a mark on media forever. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Last year, a listener who was eight years old reached out to tell us about a glaring problem with our news coverage. Here's Leo in Minneapolis. I listen to All Things Considered in the car with mom. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. Maybe you should call your show Newsy Things Considered since I don't get to hear about all the things. Or please talk more about dinosaurs and cool things. Sincerely, Leo. Well, Leo, this next story is for you. Because paleontologists in southwest China have discovered a new set of footprints, which they say belong to two dinosaurs that walked the planet some 100 million years ago. Scott Persons is a paleontologist at the College of Charleston. He's worked with the Chinese scientists who made this discovery, though he was not 
not involved in this particular find. I would say that right now, China, in particular with regards to dinosaur footprints, is undergoing a fossil renaissance. A lot of new and exciting spots are being discovered. Okay, this is where the story gets especially interesting. These tracks weren't discovered in some remote patch of desert. An observant diner spotted them at a restaurant embedded in the stone floor of the courtyard. Well, I have to say I've never gone to a restaurant to discover dinosaur tracks. I think it's super rad that people found dinosaur tracks outside of a restaurant. Just the fact that somebody noticed this and called it out, I think, is pretty great. And it's a reminder that really the fossil record is all around us. Riley Black is a paleontologist and science writer. Even sometimes when I go on walks around Salt Lake City, a lot of the sidewalks that we have out there are made from early Jurassic sandstone. And I haven't seen a dinosaur in there yet, but you'll see little tracks made by proto-mammals and scorpions and spiders that were crawling all over these sand dunes. So there's really a whole sort of urban paleontology. And as for the dino tracks in the restaurant courtyard, Chinese paleontologist Xing Li Dao was called in to investigate. He told CNN that his team used a 3D scanner to confirm that the imprints were left by sauropods. And if you were not a dinosaur buff like Leo, sauropods were plant eaters with small heads and long necks and tails. And they were monstrous. Riley Black referred to them as the heavyweights of the dinosaur world. All these dinosaurs hatched out of eggs that are about the size of a grapefruit. So they were kind of like popcorn to the carnivores of their time. Their whole game plan, evolutionarily speaking, was to eat a whole bunch of plants and get big as fast as possible. Now, fossil footprints might not seem quite as cool as skeletons and bones, but to paleontologists, they provide a unique glimpse into how dinosaurs lived. Tracks are fossilized behavior. That's the motion of a living animal. And usually tracks are some of the only evidence that we have of dinosaur social behavior. Their behavior in this case may have involved munching their way through their lush green world because Black says these types of dinos ate constantly to maintain their size. New Mexico's biggest wildfire in recorded history is all but out now. Initial estimates suggest it destroyed hundreds of homes, like a tin-roofed cabin owned by art teacher Anita Ross. I had 30 years worth of every imaginable art supply in there, and there's literally just tin on the ground. It, It burned really hot. There's nothing left in there. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we'll meet more people affected by the fire and hear what they're going to do next. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a black church in Alabama and 32 other sites have been given a historic preservation lifeline. That story is just ahead. We are already 1.1 degree Celsius hotter. So the failure of the United States to pass climate legislation, Europe saying, yeah, we're going to have fossil fuels in the mix for a while longer, is making it very, very difficult to keep 1.5 degrees within reach. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. 
88 degrees still in the Boston area, pretty hot overnight tonight, only falling to the mid-70s, so there should be a light wind, though, for some modest relief. For tomorrow, hot and humid back up into the low to mid-90s, feeling more like 100. Thursday, a thunderstorm could provide a little relief in the afternoon. Otherwise, it should be hazy, hot, humid, highs about 94 degrees. The extreme heat and humidity have caused the National Weather Service to issue a heat advisory that should last all day tomorrow. Again, 88 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Great Freedom Adventures, curated cycling tours inspired by the history and nature of New England. North Shore and Cape Tours booking now. GreatFreedomAdventures.com When I talk to people in my field, I say you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The activists met at the Brown Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Selma, Alabama. They planned to march 54 miles from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery in a voting rights demonstration. They did not even leave the city before they were brutally beaten by police with TV cameras rolling, a day known as Bloody Sunday, and one that shook the federal government's conscience to pass the Voting Rights Act later that year, 1965. We're going to stand up amid anything that they can muster up, letting the world know that we are determined to be free. The day after that violence, Martin Luther King Jr. arrived in Selma and spoke at Brown Chapel AME Church, which is still an active church today, though the actual building is not currently open. Because of the damage from termites and water, the church has extensive damage and it is actually closed. That's Wanda Maxwell. She's the project director at Brown Chapel. Today, her church becomes one of 33 places across the United States being recognized with historic preservation grants. They total $3 million from the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. They include places like the artist Faith Ringgold's studio and the home of Emmett Till's family. And we should note that some of the foundations that support this fund also support NPR. Earlier today, we spoke with Wanda Maxwell, along with the executive director of the fund, Brent Leggs. For the past five years, we work in partnership with communities nationwide to advance the broader preservation movement towards a more diverse and equitable representation of American history. We're thrilled to invest $150,000 in the future preservation of historic Brown Chapel in Selma to ensure that this sacred space of that community and an iconic site in civil rights is resource. And uh, because of the help that we have gotten, it's, it's only, you know, been a year since we broke ground. We are almost at $2 million that we've raised and we have been able to complete some of the uh, restoration and repairs. 
Brent, the African American Cultural Heritage Fund has has a wide range of grantees. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the other places that were chosen in this round and the ways in which you were hoping to help them and their curators preserve and elevate these important sites in history? Our 2022 Action Fund grant list showcases the beauty and complexity of Black history and culture in America. The historic Bluebird Inn in Detroit, that was a hub of social and music life in that important city. Or like the home and studio of the legendary artist Faith Ringgold in New Jersey. And what's unique about this project is that Miss Ringgold is living and to have a living artist who stewards an organization and is being proactive in planning for the perpetual stewardship of her home and studio is innovation in historic preservation. Wanda, your church has been a gathering place for Black people in Selma for decades and decades, long before John Lewis came there in 65. Tell us a story we might not have heard before. Well, Brown Chapel is circa 1908, and it was designed by an, a black architect named A.J. Farley, and he was right out of slavery. And he designed and built this beautiful Romanesque uh, revival-style edifice in 1908. And Wanda, I'm glad that you shared the story of this black builder and designer of historic Brown Chapel. And on this year's list, we also have another important black church that's in Los Angeles, known as Second Street Baptist Church of Los Angeles. And that building was designed by pioneering black architect, Paul Williams. And and what's beautiful about these two historic sites, they express Black culture, architectural heritage, and legacy. Absolutely. And that's that's so important because it reflects the history of the talent that was uh, there among Black people, even when we weren't necessarily offered the opportunity to learn our craft through uh, formal education. But these were people who did this extraordinary work. I want to raise this question to each of you. Why do you feel it is important to preserve and restore historical sites that speak to the Black experience and history, even when the history that they are centered on isn't necessarily uplifting? And at times, some of it is, frankly, quite painful. If you don't tell your history yourself, it it will be lost. And so... This is a not only a pilgrimage for people all over the world, but it's a way to learn about the legacy and the contributions of African-American people and how they made this country, this great experience and experiment greater and better for all citizens. So history has to be taught. And if it's not going to be taught to young people in the schools the way it should be taught, then who will do it if we won't? As preservationists, we preserve stories of a painful past, as well as stories about prosperity within the Black community. 
and we are intentional about balancing public memory because the black experience is more than racial violence and injustice. A family in Mississippi, the Williams family, that is working to preserve the Duma Pharmacy Building in Natchez, Mississippi. This place tells the story of two black, a doctor and a dentist, early entrepreneurs helping to build a thriving black commercial district in, in that city in, in Mississippi. Their story matters. Their contribution matters. And we are, are delighted to invest funding for capital improvements of this vacant building. And I know we have all heard that if the history is buried, then the tragedy repeats itself. I mean, you, you, you would be surprised at how easily history, important history, is lost when you don't have someone in those congregations searching and researching to tell the story, the legacy of it. So I'm just grateful. Brent Legs is the executive director of the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. That is a program of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And Wanda Maxwell is the project director at Brown Chapel AME Church. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's climbed a few degrees in the past uh, half hour or so, 90 degrees now in Boston. Tonight, temperatures dip only to the mid-70s. Should be mostly clear tonight. Hazy, hot, and humid tomorrow, anywhere from 90 to 95 degrees, but the heat index should be around 100 and then could be about 85 to 90 on Cape Cod, an isolated thunderstorm possible. 90 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Biden administration may soon expand the list of who's eligible for a second COVID-19 booster. Many doctors are on board. There is as much COVID around now as almost at any time. People are no longer being as careful as they were. We know that immunity wanes over time. It's Tuesday, July 19th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More on the plans to contain the latest Omicron surge coming up. NPR has an early look at the Biden administration's plan to get health insurance to more children by funding community groups to connect kids with coverage. 
And the most recent FBI data show that Missouri has the highest rate of black homicide victims. Part of the blame may lie with the state's lax gun laws. The state has virtually no standards beyond the federal standards. What that means is it's basically just open season as far as gun sale and possession. It's 601 News Headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The National Archives is now looking into reports the U.S. Secret Service deleted text messages during a two-day period surrounding the January 6th attack at the Capitol. NPR's Claudio Grisales reports the agency's chief records officer wants to find out if the messages were erased improperly. Chief Records Officer Lawrence Brewer says the Secret Service must send the National Archives a report if any of the text messages were improperly deleted. Brewer says the report is due within 30 days and must document the records erased, the circumstances surrounding the deletions, and efforts to retrieve and reconstruct the messages. A DHS watchdog claims the Secret Service deleted messages after they were requested. Separately, the messages were included in a subpoena by the House Select Committee. The Secret Service has maintained that no messages were deleted after the watchdog made its request for records. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. In a Florida courtroom today, prosecutors continued to make the case the gunman who killed 17 people at a Parkland High School in 2018 should receive the death penalty. NPR's Greg Allen reports among those testifying today were students who survived the attack. Christopher McKenna, in 2018 a freshman at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, told the jury he bumped into the gunman, Nicholas Cruz, in a school hallway. Cruz warned him things are about to get bad. McKenna ran to alert coach Aaron Feist, and Feist was killed by the gunman a short time later. The jury also heard from students wounded in the attack, including Alexander Dwaret. I remember feeling trickling down the back of my head and onto my chest. And then, you know, I touched the back of my head and then my hand was all bloody. The defense has raised numerous objections to videos of the shootings and asked for a mistrial, all without success. Cruz has already pleaded guilty. The jury will decide his sentence. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. The UK has recorded its highest temperature in history today. As Villain Marks reports, several locations in London saw thermometers topping 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The highest recorded temperature was in the very heart of England, but Heathrow Airport and the park beside Buckingham Palace were also among the hottest of hotspots. Several rail services were cancelled and many others slowed after train tracks buckled and overhead power cables collapsed. Officials have issued warnings about activities in water after at least five fatalities occurred in and around rivers and lakes already this week. The country's weather forecasting service issued extreme heat warnings for much of England. Power grids failed in some areas and the heat warped several major roads. For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. President Biden travels to Massachusetts tomorrow where he's scheduled to promote efforts to combat climate change. We're recording to sources familiar with the president's plans. He is likely to stop short of issuing any kind of emergency declaration that would unlock federal resources to deal with the issue. A strong day on Wall Street. The Dow was up 754 points today. The Nasdaq, 353 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. What's expected to be a July heat wave has begun. Boston hit 93 degrees today at Logan Airport. It's the first of what may be six days of 90-plus degree weather in the Boston area. This is the third day this year we've hit 90 degrees in Boston. Many people are heading to the coastline to find relief from the heat. WBUR's Ali Jarman has this report from Walliston Beach in Quincy. 
Even before noon, temperatures already approached 90 degrees, and walkers, runners, and bikers tried to squeeze in some exercise before it got too hot. Patrick Hines was stripped down to his bathing suit, riding along Quincy Shore Drive on a blue bike. His recommendation for beating the heat? Just get out, kick the feet, breathe the fresh air. If you have the ability to get near the seaside, the ocean, in any which way, it's uh, therapeutic both for the mind and body. Plenty of people are expected to take his advice and maybe take a dip in the water, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Germani. Two Massachusetts Congresswomen were arrested today outside the U.S. Supreme Court. Catherine Clark and Ayanna Presley were among 16 members of Congress and 18 others taken into custody during a protest of last month's Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Presley chanted as Capitol Police walked her away from the demonstration as they arrested her. Capitol Police say the demonstrators were blocking traffic and refused to obey orders to stop doing so. Clark released a statement saying the act of civil disobedience was an example of how she will fight to protect abortion rights. Presley says she will not let up the fight because abortion rights are human rights. Both lawmakers have been released from custody. The MBTA has a long way to go to hire new employees to fill critical staffing shortages. During today's MBTA board meeting, T General Manager Steve Poftak provided an update on 30 dispatcher positions the Transit Authority needs to fill. He said six out of 107 applicants are moving through a process known as pre-employment. These are people who are in training. Some folks do not make it through the training. Some people make a choice in the midst of training that this is not a job they want to do. So I I want to be very careful we're not counting these chickens before they're hatched. The staffing shortage is just one of the corrective actions the T's been required to make following a safety review by the Federal Transit Administration. One board member predicts the shortage won't be filled until sometime next year. Back to the forecast now. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce says there is no relief anytime this week for the hot weather. The thermometer hitting 90 plus already in many communities, including the city of Boston. The start of our heat wave tonight. Temperatures drop into the mid 70s. It'll be mostly clear. Hazy, hot, and humid tomorrow. Highs 90 to 95. Heat index hovering around 100 degrees will be 85 to 90 on Cape Cod. An isolated thunderstorm is possible, and not much relief in sight with highs in the low to mid 90s expected to last through the weekend. It is 90 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. How soon can more Americans get a second COVID-19 booster? That is what the Biden administration is trying to decide right now, whether to significantly expand booster shot eligibility this summer to protect more people against the latest Omicron surge. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here to explain. Rob, this has gotten really confusing for some people. So if you could just remind us, who is already eligible for another booster and what's being considered by the administration right now? Sure. This is all about second boosters. We're talking about fourth shots. You know, anyone age 50 and older has been eligible for a second booster since March. Same goes for anyone age 12 and older who has a weak immune system. But that means that most people younger than 50 haven't been eligible for another booster, even though the immunity they got from their first three shots has been wearing off. And now the most contagious strain of the virus yet, the Omicron subvariant called BA5, is fueling it 
yet another surge. Here's Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota. When we look at what's happening with this widespread transmission right now, BA5, it just really, I think, cries out for what else can we do to reduce the likelihood of serious illness. And boosters are, I think, the obvious answer. So NPR has confirmed that federal officials are debating whether to make second boosters available to all adults to protect them through the summer. Okay, so tell us about this debate. Who, who doesn't think that this is a good idea? Well, you know, some people think the extra shot should just be offered to those at high risk for some reason. I talked about this with Dr. Anthony Fauci. I don't think it would make much sense for a perfectly healthy 25-year-old person to necessarily get a boost now. There's a difference between a perfectly healthy 25-year-old person and a 43-year-old person with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease you know, or heart disease or asthma or, you know, pregnant women. But others say all adults should at least have the option. Here's Dr. Robert Wachter at the University of California, San Francisco. People are no longer being as careful as they were. We know that immunity wanes over time. We have a variant that is capable of evading the immune system. We have good evidence that the second booster lowers the probability of severe case. And you put all that together, and it seems to me that it should be offered to people as an option. But others just think there's really no need to open up booster eligibility broadly at this point. And Rob, given how contagious you've said that BA5, this variant, is, why do they say not to open up booster eligibility broadly? Yeah, so some say there really isn't good evidence that a second booster would really do much for most people. Three shots are still keeping most people from getting really sick or dying, and there is concern that if you keep giving people the same shot over and over again, it could backfire by kind of training their immune system to only try to fight off the original strain of the virus. I talked about this with Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease expert at Kaiser Health News. There's this phenomenon of imprinting, also known as original antigenic sin, where if you continue to give doses of the same vaccine, you could, in a sense, trap the immune system in wanting to respond to the original virus and not adapting as well to future variants. But even those who aren't worried about that have another concern, that giving people another booster now may confuse things for the fall when the government plans to roll out the next generation of vaccines, you know, vaccines that have been updated to target Omicron and try to protect people against what could be another bad winter surge. There also just may not be enough time to do both boosters since people have to wait months between the boosters for them to work. So you can see it's, it's a tough, complicated call, but the FDA could decide what to do by the end of this week. NPR's Rob Stein, thank you. You bet, Juana. As the war in Ukraine nears its sixth month, people in the northeastern city of Kharkiv are getting used to a new normal. Construction crews are cleaning up bombed-out buildings. People are returning to work. But they do all that as air raid sirens go off multiple times a day and between daily missile strikes on the city. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from Kharkiv. City officials continue to plead with Kharkiv residents to respect the air raid alerts, but the sirens go off so frequently that many people don't. Only when an explosion is particularly loud and presumably close do residents head for the bomb shelters. 21-year-old Anastasia Shapoval says in Kharkiv right now, you have to balance the shelling with the rest of your life. When it's shelling uh, and you go to a coffee shop, uh, I saw on Telegram, uh-huh, okay, shelling, but I want some coffee. Okay, I should go for coffee. <laughs> 
Shapoval, who just graduated from college, works at a volunteer center that distributes food packets. A few days earlier, a rocket brought down a five-story building across from the center. Shapoval says another missile hit just 200 yards from her house. But she says Kharkiv is her home, and this is where she wants to be right now. Our shelling, it's not like all day long, no. Most of the explosions are in the northern suburbs and industrial areas, and Shapoval says you get used to it. Like a resident, I understand that, uh, okay, we have uh, a night shelling when, for example, we have uh, air alert, and uh, then, for example, 15 minutes, so there are three, five, seven bombs in Kharkiv, okay, but uh, not all time. She recognizes that this isn't normal. This current Kharkiv life isn't for everyone, she says, and many of her friends who've left may not come back until the war is finished. When Russia attacked Kharkiv in late February with fighter jets and cruise missiles, ordinary life in Ukraine's second largest city abruptly came to a halt. The vast majority of Kharkiv's population fled the city. Kharkiv's underground metro stations, which were built by the Soviets to withstand nuclear bomb blasts, became permanent shelters. Thousands of people slept on the station platforms and in subway cars. But now the metro trains are running again. Commuters and families dart in and out of the aging rail cars. And where residents used to sleep in the subterranean stations to escape the bombing raids, volunteers now offer first aid classes. Alexei Yarachenko leads a class specifically focused on how to treat people injured in rocket attacks. He demonstrates how to use a tourniquet and bandage a shrapnel wound. It's War First Aid 101. Alexander Maltsev just watched one of the classes. Uh, understand the uh, explosion and uh, war on our street every day. The 40-year-old says rocket attacks are so common in Kharkiv, it's important to know how to help. Back above ground, work crews are gutting damaged buildings. Many have had their windows blown out by explosions. This has led to a lot of storefronts being covered with plywood. This includes Anastasia Shapoval's favorite cafe, La Show 2. Shapoval and her friend Alexander Kochkin say that the name of the cafe is three words that don't really mean anything but are quintessentially Kharkiv. La to ensure it's just three different words. La, it's about uh, what are you doing. Show uh, uh, it's um, about what, like what, <laughs> what, 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 <laughs> and. Uh, and two, two, it's like when a uh, lot of English people uh, say like, uh, so we say two. <laughs> the name of the cafe, Shapoval says, is like a young person saying whatever, but saying it in a way you'd only hear in Kharkiv. A few nights ago, she came here to the cafe, she says. It was full of people again for the first time since the Russian invasion. Despite the air raid sirens and the shelling and the missing windows, there's life here. And she says she loves this city. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. Western Europe is in the grips of a brutal heat wave that is breaking records and spreading further north than ever before. Britain registered its highest ever temperature at over 104 degrees in London. And wildfires have broken out across Portugal, Spain and France, killing hundreds. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Paris. I've just come out of my own apartment into the street. And I've lived here... A pretty long time, and I think I've never felt such hot air. It's 8 o'clock at night. The sun is still baking, and there's a hot wind. It does not feel like Paris. 
I'm François Jobert, a weather forecaster uh, in Metro France, uh, in Paris. Jobar agrees it doesn't feel like Paris, where the average summer temperature is around 80. He switches to French to get more technical. This afternoon was 105 degrees, the second hottest day registered in Paris in 150 years since the first weather station was put in a central park in 1873. From then until 2019, there was only one day where it got that hot, and that was in 1947. Jobar says the heat waves will become more frequent and intense because greenhouse gases have undeniably caused global warming. He says the current heat dome is due to air from North Africa and the Sahara Desert that's stagnating over Europe. Sebastian Mernild is a professor of climate change and glaciology at the Climate Institute of the University of Southern Denmark. I reach him on the phone in Italy where he's on vacation. That's why I'm just walking on the street with my family here. Mernild says warm air from Africa is going farther north because the jet stream is weakening and becoming more unstable. And that's happening because Arctic temperatures are rising faster than everywhere else. Arctic Arctic heats up, roughly speaking, on average three times faster compared to the global mean temperature change. The Arctic is heating up three times faster than everywhere else. Mernild says it will all get worse until we reduce our greenhouse emissions. In Paris, most apartments don't have air conditioning. I wanted to see how Parisians are coping. I lower the shades to keep the sun out and close the windows all day. And when I get up in the morning very early, I open them and try to get some fresh air in. And I have the fans going, says Adnan Abadi. Excuse-moi, madame. Another woman tells me she has no time to talk because she's got a bag of ice that's melting and her little son who's holding her hand is not well from the heat and sun. Many people say they haven't felt heat like this since the summer of 2003 when more than 30,000 mostly elderly people died across Europe with 14,000 deaths in France alone. Eleanor Beardsley, Empire News, Paris. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, NPR's exclusive report on the Biden administration's plan to get health insurance for more children. Even Wall Street was hot today. The Dow gained nearly 2.5%, 754 points, to finish the day at 31,827. S&P rose a little more, 2 and 3 quarters percent, to settle at 39.37. The Nasdaq picked up even more territory, over 3%, to finish the day at 11,713. The rate of homeowners remodeling their homes is expected to drop substantially between now and a year from now. Harvard University's Center for Housing Studies predicts while the numbers of homes being remodeled is expected to drop, expenditures will increase. The center expects the first half of next year remodeling expenditures to hit $450 billion, well over the customary 5% growth. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 
The heat should last all week long. Today's highs were well above 90 in some areas. Tonight should vault in mid-70s, a light breeze. Tomorrow, high humidity, temperatures to match. Up around low to mid-90s, feeling more like 100 degrees. 90 degrees now in Boston at 621. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Black Americans made up 14 percent of the U.S. population, but accounted for more than half of all homicide victims in 2019, the most recent year with available data from the FBI. And Missouri stands out as the state with the highest number of Black people killed in homicides per capita. That is according to the latest annual study by the Violence Policy Center. Josh Sugarman is the group's executive director and joins me now. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. So, Josh, this is the sixth year in a row that your organization found Missouri to have the highest rate of Black homicide victims. And the state saw that rate jump 45 percent between 2014 and 2019. Any indication as to what is behind that stark increase? The only thing that we can look at is the data we receive from the FBI. And so what we've seen, probably the most striking factor is involvement of guns in Black homicide victimization. In Missouri, 95% of Black homicide victims were killed with a gun. So across the board, we find in this study, it's not just in Missouri, but across the country, the role played by firearms. But in certainly in Missouri, it's striking. I grew up in that state, and I have to wonder, when you look at Missouri and other states, how much of this is about accessibility of guns by purchasers, how easy it is to obtain a gun in certain states? When you look at Missouri, the state has virtually no standards beyond the federal standards for gun sale and possession. And that is not unique among some of the states that we've looked at in the study that rank in the top 10. What's just as important is the fact that in Missouri, communities and jurisdictions that want to address this problem on a local level, say, for example, Kansas City, St. Louis, they can't do so because what's known as a statewide firearms preemption, which means that no jurisdiction can pass a gun law tougher than the state standards. You know, we should point out here that your group advocates for gun control and you're highlighting access to firearms as a problem here. What do you think it's going to take to affect any sort of lasting change in a state like Missouri with the type of legal landscape that you're discussing here? I think in Missouri, it depends upon, first of all, the ongoing activities of grassroots advocates, community members, and other stakeholders to make sure their voices are heard, which they are, and they work very hard every day at this, you know, preventing this type of violence. But on top of that, that the policymakers have to recognize that the state is in a crisis. When you look at the numbers compared not just to the national levels, but to other states, it's just shocking. And so there's an understanding that there's a crisis that needs to be addressed, but it hasn't reached the uh, state policymaker level yet. Missouri is also home to one of the highest profile killings that fueled the Black Lives Matter movement. That is the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, which is near St. Louis. What do you say to Black communities that feel that they cannot trust law enforcement and to those who may feel safer having a gun as a result? While that reaction can be understandable, the fact is that regardless of a person's race or ethnicity or sex, guns are rarely used uh, in self-defense, whether in justifiable homicides 
or in non-fatal prevention. And an unfortunate reality is that in the past two years, the gun industry has focused on uh, marketing to communities of color, uh, Black Americans, uh, Latino Americans, Asian Americans in the context of COVID and episodes like you describe. This study is based on data from the year 2019, which is the most recent year from which data is available. What do you expect data from 2020 and 2021 to look like, particularly given that those two years track with the COVID pandemic? It's hard to say what the trends will reveal, but unfortunately, you know, we just know what other agencies have reported, the trends being reported, but we would not be surprised, obviously, if these numbers do go up. Josh Sugarman is the executive director of the Violence Policy Center. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. About 4 million children don't have health insurance in the U.S., so a fall on the playground and a broken arm could potentially cause financial catastrophe for a family. And if kids don't go to the doctor, that can mean missed shots, asthma getting out of control, or other illnesses getting worse. Now the Biden administration is set to spend a record amount of money to get more kids covered. NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. More than half of uninsured children actually already qualify for free health insurance through either Medicaid or CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. The challenge is to find those kids and help their parents sign up for coverage. Today, the Biden administration announced it's sending $49 million to community groups to do that work. Back to school is a great time for it, says Nicole Smith-Anderson of the Greater Flint Health Coalition. Their $1.5 million grant will fund outreach workers all over the county trying to find families wherever they can. Back to school fairs, any sort of meet the teacher nights when there's kindergarten roundup. In Michigan, she says the sign-up process for Medicaid and CHIP is pretty simple. She says it can take 30 minutes or less, but you don't have to do it on the spot. It can be a lot, right, when you're at a school fair and all these different people are giving you papers and there's a lot going on. So if we say, okay, we're going to call you tomorrow at whatever time when you're available, we're a lot more successful in getting that (laughs) taken care of. Smith Anderson's organization has gotten federal grants for this work before, but this year the Biden administration is sending out more money than ever. Chiquita Brooks-Lasher leads the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So many children, even though they're eligible, don't know it. Their parents don't know that. They are eligible for coverage. There still needs to be so much education done. She says the Biden administration helped more adults get insured last fall on healthcare.gov by focusing on outreach workers who can walk people through the enrollment process one-on-one for free. And that's the same thing that we're trying to do here, really making sure we are using trusted messengers. And they're racing to beat a looming threat. When the COVID-19 public health emergency eventually ends, states will have the power to take people off the Medicaid rolls if they don't keep up with their paperwork. States haven't been able to do that since the pandemic started. Because of that, nearly 7 million children who have Medicaid right now may lose it, says Joan Alker of the Georgetown Center for Children and Families. So getting these outreach workers funded and connecting with families now is crucial, she says. This is absolutely good news that these grants are going out. It is the largest amount that we've seen. I think clearly the Biden administration has looked for the pennies under the couch to get this amount out this year. But Alker warns the feds can only do so much. But at the end of the day, states run Medicaid and CHIP. So it's going to be up to the governor of 
Georgia. It's going to be up to Governor DeSantis. It's going to be up to Governor Abbott in Texas, the states where we have some of the highest uninsured rates for children to see where those end up at. Making sure kids get health insurance and stay covered as pandemic protections wind down, she says, is going to take a massive effort. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight at Major League Baseball's All-Star Game, the Red Sox will be well represented. Rafael Devers is in the starting lineup. Xander Bogarts and J.D. Martinez will be on the bench for the American League. The game in Los Angeles starts at 8 p.m. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or if you have a smart speaker, ask it to play WBUR. It is 88 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.30, and Marketplace is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Tanglewood, presenting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, guest artists, and more in the Berkshire Hills this summer. Details and performance schedule at tanglewood.org. And the Elliott Hotel in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and kid-friendly personalized service where families can relax in one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com.